Hey guys, welcome back to Keep Knit OD Podcast and happy Monday. Today is a very special day because this week we officially hit the one-year mark of the Keep Knit OD podcast. And I just want to take a moment and thank each and every one of you for tuning in every week, um, sending me suggestions, and just keeping me updated with your optometry journeys. I love getting your feedback and sharing your successes with everyone else. And I also loved sharing my journey with you guys. Um, and I will continue to do that over the course of the next four years and beyond. And in celebration of that today, um, we have another admissions interview episode, and today I have with me Dr. Michael Early. He's the Chair of Admissions and the Chief of Binocular Vision and Pediatric Services at the U Ohio State University College of Optometry, and I also have with me Miss Candace Johnson. She's the Admissions Counselor. Um, Dr. Early attended OSU um, and graduated with highest honors in 88. Then he went on to earn his PhD in physiological optics in 92. Um, his dissertation focused on the acquired visual losses associated with amblyopia. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, now without further ado, let's answer all of your questions about Ohio State University College of Optometry. Um, I have with me Dr. Early and Ms. Candace Johnson. Um, so for the first uh, couple of questions, we are going to be tackling admissions type questions. Um, so the first question and probably the most asked question would be what makes an applicant competitive for your program? Great question. Um, so at Ohio State, we, we uh, do a, a very holistic review. So when we're reviewing our applicants, and especially when we're reviewing people after interviews, uh, the major things that we would go through, first off, we have to look at academic capability. Optometry school is hard. All professional schools are hard. Ohio State is no different. Uh, the first year, we go over a lot of detailed basic science, et cetera. We have a lot of expectations. So we do a thorough review of the academic record, uh, looking for academic uh, ability. Uh, that doesn't mean just GPA, that would be way too easy. So uh, admissions can't be broken down to an Excel spread list. So instead, what we look at is we could look at GPA, we could look at OATs with the understanding that OATs are a one day event and OATs can be biased if you've taken three Kaplan courses and things like that, and not everyone has access to that. Uh, we also look at the, um, we look at the, the school, the integrity of the school. We look at the program that the student is in. We look at the type of courses. We actually go back and look at the uh, record from uh, semester to semester. So we look at what courses did you take at the same time? Did you take organic chemistry and biochemistry always in the summer by itself? Or did you take organic chemistry and biochemistry together? Or if you're a non, uh, if you're a, um, an arts major or something, did you take all of your theory courses in theory of music and this in music, and then turn around and also take microbiology and bio, you know, biochemistry? That shows that you could really handle a lot of things at one time, which is what optometry is. So grades could be misleading if you're always taking one hard course, then you do well, and then those students have a tendency to uh, um, have a rockier start in optometry school. So we look at all of those things. And then we also, a big thing that we like to look at is the, uh, what is the record? What does the GPA look like? Um, if you had a, a lot of people have a tough first year because they're the smartest high school student and they never really studied. They just sit in class and learn it. And then they take the test and it's exactly what the teacher said. So they do real well. Then they get into college and they suddenly learn, wow, that didn't work. So their first year is a little rocky. So, but the problem is if a fourth of your, if your whole first year is rocky, that's a fourth of your GPA. So we look at a trend. What did your first year look like in your second year, then your third year, and then your fourth year. Uh, so we look at that as far as it. 
the other thing that can change your GPA is sometimes people find optometry later. So they're just going to college because they want to go to college. So they don't really try for those A's. And then all of a sudden in their second year, if we read their essay, they found optometry or their third year. And then we see their GPA skyrocket up. And that gives us a better idea of what they're academically capable for when they're really motivated. So all of those things just go into that simple question of, are you academically motivated? Are you academically capable? So it's a lot. And we spend a lot of time on that. Um, but I don't want people to think that it's just a GPA. And if they had a bad first year, they can't go to optometry school because that keeps a lot of good people out of, from applying. Uh, next thing we look for uh, at Ohio State really is do you have an understanding about optometry? You know, we're looking for why you've chose optometry. Um, I want to help people is a phenomenal basis, but you could do that in any health profession. So what we're looking for is what is unique about optometry to you? Uh, so your exposure to optometry, your understanding of the day-to-day -day part of optometry. Do you understand the pros and do you understand the, the, the very few cons <laughs> that exist in optometry, et cetera? So that, uh, that doesn't mean you have to have a job, uh, but it does mean you have to have some exposure. And at Ohio State, we like that exposure to be more than one practice because I'm not looking for someone that likes their eye doctor. You know, oh, I could see myself being that eye doctor. We like them to see other practices so they can say, okay, you know, my eye doctor probably won't give me their staff. So I probably need to see if I like the profession. So we, so that's a big thing that we look at too. Uh, then we look at, at Ohio State, our mission is to create the, the, the leaders of optometry. We take that seriously. We want our students to be excellent clinicians and then go out and lead in all the different parts of optometry. So we look for demonstrations of leadership. Uh, and we do not define leadership as positional. We're not looking for presidents of everything. We're looking for people that got involved in, um, in, in events and in groups and made a difference. So maybe they make the biggest difference as the treasurer. Maybe they make the biggest difference as the social secretary. Maybe they make the biggest difference as a member. But they have to tell us how they made a difference and how they led Right. So and, and, and we could look at that over time, like I was a member and then I got into this and I made a big difference. So that that demonstrates leadership. But leadership is a skill set. Leadership is not necessarily just a position. So I don't. So we're not just looking for people that are just looking for positions to fill their CV if they really didn't do anything in that event right, or in that group. And then we look for someone that has the ability to, that, to, to work with um, populations outside of their own. right now is access as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we don't have enough access uh, for our care. Some of that is because of a, a lack of knowledge and some of that is because of, of lack of complete transportation and access and insurance. So we look for people that have demonstrated that they can deal with different populations and deal with people that are different from them and deal effectively with a, a broad uh, things that we look for optometry before we would invite someone for an interview. Um, and then during the interview, we spend a lot of time just doing a deep dive into having the student explore those things and explain those things to prove that they do have those skills. Awesome. So it sounds like you guys um, don't really have like a hard cutoff for anything, if I understand that correctly. Like not no. really if you see, you know, other aspects of the application that gives you an idea of what the person's background might be. Um, and if you feel like they would be a great fit then they'd be invited in for an interview. Certainly, like I can't have a cutoff because like a, um, a, three, a three eight when all you did was study is, is no different than a three three 
when you held a 30 hour a week job because you had to put yourself through school, right? Both of those are showing, you know, tremendous amounts of motivation, et cetera. So no, I don't think you can have a, you have to have a three, five, that would be too simple. You have to have a three, five, you have to have this on the OAT. We have averages, right? Like all schools, but hopefully students realize that averages are just that. Averages have standard deviations. And when they see the average, they're like, oh, I don't have that average. Therefore I can't apply. You know, if, 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 if our average is uh, a 3.7 for a GPA and it goes from a 3.1 to a 4.0, right? You got to look at the full range so we don't have cutoffs. Awesome. Um, now let's talk about some prerequisites. So I know for every program they have um, standard prerequisites and then um, each program might add a few extra classes. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? And also, um, can you apply before you have all of them completed? Um, so we have the common prerequisites that most do. We have the, bio, the biology. Maybe we only require one year, uh, one semester of organic chemistry instead of two. Some might do two. We cut that back to one. We have the biochemistry. We have all of the physics, um, microbiology. We do not require statistics. We teach that ourselves. We teach epidemiology in the first year, so we could teach that ourselves. Uh, probably the one difference on ours uh, is in our first year, our students take a very detailed pathophysiology course. So we want them to have a foundation in physiology, understand the word. So we're not, so when we talk about a, a, a gastric pit in a stomach, they're not totally lost when we're talking about gastritis, et cetera. So we do require a physiology course. And that physiology course is just a complete course. It could be one semester if you do the whole body, or it could be two if you divide if your school divides it into two. So probably that physiology course, it'd be the, the, the only maybe difference between our school and some other schools. Um, and then can you apply? Yeah, we, we, we will do interviews and we will do acceptances with prerequisites out. Uh, we tell students all the time, at Ohio State, we do rolling admissions. We open our admissions in July and we start accepting people in July. So if you wait to get all of your prerequisites and then you don't finish them until spring quarter, right? There's a lot of spots that have been given away. So you can certainly apply. And when we accept people, we accept them with the condition that their work in future prerequisites is consistent with their work in previous prerequisites, right? So we don't want, a, we don't want an AB student to suddenly go, all I got to get is Cs. Uh, that's, that's not what, what the condition would be. But yes, you can apply without all of your prerequisites. And a lot of people do. Awesome. Um, and that's definitely a great tip that we always like to give students is apply as soon as you can, um, even if you don't have everything all lined up, because um, most programs uh, operate on a rolling admissions basis. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so generally, you know, if COVID was no longer an issue, I know um, some um, testing centers are still um, limited on when and um, how many tests they administer every day. Um, so in this cycle, um, would you be able to get an interview without taking a standardized exam? Uh, this year, yeah. Yeah, if, if the rest of your work is, uh, we wouldn't offer an acceptance without some standardized exam. Mm -hmm. Now at Ohio State, we offer, you know, we accept the OAT, the MCAT, the DAT, the GRE, et cetera. Uh, so, but we, if we're, if we're looking at something and, and everything else on the record looks like uh, that this, this is an applicant with a strong academic ability with what we're looking for, then we could do an interview without, a, without the um, OAT or without a standardized exam. But we wouldn't do an admission uh, we don't admit without the standardized exam. Awesome. 
All right, Candace, we want to hear from you. Um, so the next question is, um, how is the interview day structured? Um, so I'm not sure if you guys plan on doing in-person or Zoom or if you um, have an option for both, um, but can you just walk us through um, what should students expect um, on their interview day? Sure. This year, we did decide to do uh, both in-person um, interviews and uh, virtual, so via Zoom. Um, student has the option to choose which one. Um, each, whichever one they choose, it does not, you know, we don't have a preference on one or the other, but um, of course, if you come in person, you do get to tour the facilities and meet the faculty in person and that sort of thing. Um, with the Zoom interviews, we do try to make it as personable and as, you know, as we can, as likely as what it would be in person. Um, interview day is structured as we have a welcome uh, session at the beginning to where you can ask any questions, um, meet Sean Gilbert, which is our assistant uh, director in admissions and myself. So we kind of go through the itinerary of the day and then you complete your interviews and then you're able to meet some of the faculty, some current students and kind of get your questions answered from those different perspectives. And in the end, we have a session that just kind of explains a little bit more about our program um, some benefits to coming to Ohio State, which we call the Buckeye Advantage, and also, um, like I said, asking questions uh, for the in-person. We are allowing uh, uh, our applicants to bring one or two guests with them, so you know people that will be supporting you through the program can also come and see uh, the program, the curriculum, meet some of our staff and faculty, and just kind of get a gist for the Ohio State environment. Awesome. Um, and is the interview open or closed file? Uh, open review. All of the all of the members of the admissions committee have thoroughly looked through the applications uh, file before we sit down with them. Awesome. Um, so um, after um, applicants go through the interview process, now comes the applicant review process. So mm -hmm. can you kind of um, explain what should applicants expect as far as timeline or feedback goes? Um, are they gonna get a feedback regardless or only if they um, have been granted admission? The, well, at Ohio State, since the, all interviews are done by the same people, we have, a, we have an admissions committee. We don't have a bunch of faculty that serve on it and give numbers. So the, after every interview, uh, when we do them on Friday, we sit down right away and discuss that applicant at that time. Uh, so the applicant will typically uh, get a response back from us uh, by Monday or Tuesday of the next week. And so we, we, try to, we, we try to have that turnover done real quickly. We can do that because I don't have to compare applicants from 15 different faculty members. We're all the, the, the one committee interviews everybody. Awesome. And do you still get a feedback regardless of the outcome? Yeah, so that feedback on, on that Monday might be, you know, um, everything was absolutely fantastic. We would love to have you in our program. That feedback on Monday might be everything went great, but we're early on in the process and we really, we, we need to interview some more people. Uh, so we're just going to place you on hold. But at Ohio State, if we place you on hold, that means that we really do think you could do our program. It's just a matter of we only have 68 slots. Um, and then... Uh, and then realistically, rarely, if, if everything just, if everything did blow up completely, uh, for some reason, the feedback on Monday could be, thank you for your interest, uh, but, but, but there won't be a spot at Ohio State. 
Awesome. Um, so we're closing off um, the admissions part of um, this episode. And I just wanted to end this with what are some of your tips um, as a faculty member um, to leave a lasting impression on your interviewers? Um, I think my biggest tip is to make yourself unique, right? Don't, it's, that's, you have to stand out, right? So what we're looking for, um, certainly at Ohio State is, as I said, you know, if I have, if I have five, 600 people apply and we can only take 68 people because we have a small class, we're looking for people that are going to bring a unique trait, skills, passions, right? So the more unique you can be or, or tell your story, uh, you know, why is optometry important to you? Why do you want to be an optometrist? How are you going to make a difference in optometry? Um, um, and, and some things have to be generic, right? But the more you can be unique and sell yourself, so when we ask questions, uh, it's okay. How did I personally do that? You know, how did how did I make a difference? Uh, and, and try not to just be generic um, would be the biggest thing because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for when you leave that room, we can say, you know, I still have 120 interviews left to do, but I am not going to get 120 people better than this person. So we're going to take them today, right? So what whatever you could do. Uh, Anyone that gets an interview should enter that room with an air of confidence because they earn to be in that room. We do not accept, we do not bring people in for interviews that we do not think are really exceptional people that have the capabilities. So they should enter in with some confidence, uh, knowing, you know, this is my opportunity to, to really sell my story. Uh, and some students don't like to do that because they think they're bragging, you know, and that and that's a problem. It's like, oh no, I don't want to come across as. And, and you don't have to sell your story by being real cocky or anything else like that. You just have to be, you have to be truthful about, you know, I deserve to be here. This is what I've done to prepare. And this is why I want to be an optometrist. Uh, make that impression and interview should go really well. Awesome. Um, so we are getting ready to answer some questions about the program. Um, so after you've been granted admissions, you're excited to accept your spot at Ohio State. Um, what should you expect, you know, in the first year or the didactic years, what kind of classes you take, how's the course load, um, lab time, do you get to see patients um, anytime before the third year? I'm just going to walk us through um, how the program kind of um, works. Okay. Uh, so in the first year, you're going to take a, uh, an, an, the, the basic, a lot number of basic science courses. So in the first semester, you're going to have uh, general and microscopic anatomy, general optics, pathophysiology. Um, you're going to have ocular anatomy, uh, and you're going to have your first course in uh, practice management. We have uh, the, one of the most extensive practice management courses uh, of any school, so we begin that in your first year. Um, uh, the anatomy courses, uh, the optics courses uh, have labs, so it's, 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 it's time intensive. Um, uh, but um, students do extremely well in it because uh, the faculty that teach it, um, most of our faculty are, um, the, the vast majority of our faculty are optometrists with MSs, optometrists with PhDs. Uh, so they have, they're optometrists that also have other degrees in other areas. So they teach, like, for example, I teach the anatomy and neuroanatomy course, but then I'm the attendant, I, I'm in the traumatic brain injury clinic in the pediatric clinic. So when I'm teaching neuroanatomy, I'm teaching it from an optometric perspective also. We do full body stuff, but we teach it from an optometric. 
when we're talking about rheumatoid arthritis and pathophysiology, we're talking about that because patients will present with idiopathic, you know, episcleritis, conjunctivitis, and uveitis. So the students are real interested and they learn about it because they can see how it's all related to optometry the whole way. In your second semester, you take the second part of those. So you take neuro and you take more optics of the eye, et cetera. Uh, the big addition to the second semester of first year is that's when you're in clinic. So in the first year, we make sure that everyone knows how to do acuities and everyone knows how to do fields and color vision. In second semester of your first year, we put you in third year clinic and then you're, then you're working with a third year. You are not doing an exam because you don't know how the exam works, but you're helping with acuities and fields and color vision and pressures and things like that. And the real big reason that we put first years in the clinic is we want them to see exactly what the third year is doing and how the attending is in there all the time and how the attending's presence is really a positive thing. They're not looking for mistakes. They're looking for ways to help. They're looking for the interaction between the student and the attending. They're looking for how you, how you relate to the patient. Uh, so the students love that rotation and the third years love it because they get to show off to the first years. Look where I am two years later. So you start getting in the clinic in your first year. So then that's all the basic science. Then we end the first year with a, with a, a course, which is called Keystone, which is a full 40 hour a week course, uh, all hands on deck where the students are broken down into groups and they're given cases that, that we put together from real patients and they have to work through those cases as groups. Uh, and they have to work through all of the clinical data, figure out the clinical data and explain all of the clinical findings from their basic science understanding. So the patient had a two diopter myopic shift, what's going on, they look it up, they find out the patient has nuclear cataracts. So they put that together with the nuclear cataracts, but then they also have to explain what exactly is happening to the lens to cause the shift in the, so it. So it allows the students, and that's all open book, and they're working in groups. So that's an opportunity for the students to apply what they learned their first year, not memorized, but learned into a clinical finding. And, and it makes them realize uh, how much they learned and how, and how applicable that really is to their clinical care. And then once they get through Keystone, we celebrate by doing our white coat ceremony. So that's one of my favorite events. It's like they worked hard, they've, they've applied it to clinic, now they get their white coat. Uh, second year is uh, most of the courses on how to do the exam. So in the second year, you're taking your posterior segment, your anterior segment disease, but you're also taking the step-by-step, -step, how do I do an exam? How do I do a refraction? How do I do a balance? How do I do cover test? Uh, and at the same time, in another course, you're taking all of the uh, procedures. How do I do slit lamp? How do I do IOPs? How do I do, uh, you know, uh, gonioscopy, et cetera? So that's, that's the second year. Uh, and they're practicing in lab on how to do exams for each other. So at the second semester of second year, then they are actually doing exams on, on real people. Uh, so they, they are the doctor. Um, so they're in there. Now we allow them to bring in family if they want to do exams on family. Uh, they can bring in friends if they want to do exams on friends or faculty members. Uh, they could do exams on faculty and staff, but they're actually doing full exams uh, at the end of second year. Uh, third year, then they're in clinic a lot. Our third year is uh, we we changed our our clinic our third year to a hybrid, so they only have live classes on Wednesday, and then the other hour. So in a three hour course, they'll have a live course on Wednesday where they where they meet in person and answer all their questions, and then the other hours are um, are either sync are asynchronously zoomed, and what that asynchronous hybrid course allows us to do is our third years are in clinic a lot, which is what they asked us about. So they could be in, they're in primary vision care. Our third years run our primary vision care clinics. Uh, 
but we also have clinics. Uh, we're real proud that we run clinics in uh, a number of FQHCs in the city uh, and socioeconomically depressed town parts of towns. We run FQHCs in homeless shelters. Uh, we have a clinic in a blind school in the Blind School for Ohio. We have a clinic in a, uh, a, a mental health facility uh, for, for people that are institutionalized. So our third years do all of those rotations. Uh, which is really cool. And then our third years also, every one of our third years does a rotation through vision therapy because we have a ridiculous backload on vision therapy people. We have a, we do a lot of vision therapy at Ohio State, both on kids and on traumatic brain injury. So our third years are actually, do they do all of the therapy. Uh, so, uh, and then our third years also do a rotation through eyewear gallery, through our dispensary, uh, because at Ohio State, we still teach a lot about ophthalmic optics because the way we help a patient often is through glasses and prism and magnification differences. And if you don't know how to do glasses, then you don't know if your prescription was wrong or if the glasses were made wrong. So our third year is, is a lot of patient stuff while taking a lot of the courses. The courses the third years takes are how do you do a pediatric exam? How do you do a contact lens exam? How do you do a low vision exam? So the courses they're taking on how do you do all the specialty exams? Then fourth year is all classes. Um, and Ohio State uh, is, a, is a little different from a lot of schools. We only use extern sites. Uh, so our fourth year is divided into three 17-week uh, rotations. You will, everyone spends 17 weeks in a VA, and then everyone spends 17 weeks in an ODMD site doing surgical co-management. And then the other 17 weeks, everyone is in our clinic. So all of their pediatrics, all of their low vision, all of their traumatic brain injury, all of their contact lens is all done in-house. Uh, so that way, because uh, at Ohio State, we don't have residents in our clinics. So our fourth year see all of the tough contact lens cases. They see all of the TBI cases. They, we, we don't have any resident only cases. They all go to the fourth years. Uh, so, so the fourth years are, uh, they, they like that rotation because every day they're in a different clinic. Um, and then they're just working with the attending. So that's, that's, the, that's the fourth year. So lots of, lots of clinical exposure throughout that. They do about 2,000 exams by the time they're done. And those are full exams. Those aren't screenings or anything else. That's just full exams, no chart review. It's just how many exams are you gonna do between 1,900 and 2,000 full exams across the board in all clinics. Um, you, can't, you, can't put, you can't elect out of anything. We have enough patients that everyone takes every clinic. So it works out real well. Awesome. Yeah, it's, I think this is the first time that I've heard um, a program starting their first year students in clinic, um, just assisting, which is awesome. Um, and then for the fourth year, so you said almost everyone does VA and then ODMD. Are those requirements yeah. or is that just the most common rotation that people? No, every, everyone has to rotate through a VA because we want everyone to have a hospital-based rotation. And then the ODMD site can be a lot of different ways. It could be it could be in a surgical center. It could be in a private practice with an ODMD. But those are those are required rotations. Right. Um, do they have to be in that same order or? No, no. That's uh, because we have a small group. So the real nice thing about Ohio State is since we only have 17 or 18 people doing each of those rotations, the way we assign those rotations is we just sit. You, you, you tell us what would be your favorite. So you, Karen, you might say, okay, uh, I don't care when I go, but I want to go to this particular VA out in Vermont because I know that doc and things like that. So I, I don't care when I go. So that gives us three opportunities to get you there because we can get you there through any one of the three 17 weeks, right? Another student might say, I don't care where I go, but I have three children. So I would really like to do my rotations at, in Columbus. 
And we're like, okay, we're gonna let you do that or we'll have to babysit, right? So, so everyone has a different reason for choosing. So that's how we do it. We, you do your top, you do your list of where you wanna go and when you want to do those rotations in-house, et cetera. And then we sit down and we try to get every student within their top two or three of, of all of those. And it usually works out pretty well. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so my next question here, and that's a question that I've been getting a lot recently, and I feel like a lot of people don't really talk about it uh, for transparency reasons. So what is the like estimated cost of attendance, and does it include the required equipment? And if not, what's the estimated cost of equipment, at least for your first year? Sure. Um, I'll tackle it from a first year standpoint, just because that's, a, that's like the basis of where you start from, right? Mm -hmm. um, the total cost of attendance for an Ohio resident would be $52,691. Of course, keep in mind that's an estimate. That includes your tuition, that includes fees, that includes um, the iPad, your books, that includes uh, your equipment that you would use. That also estimates your living expenses, so you know, housing, transportation, um, anything, food, anything else that would be included in that. That's what we include for Ohio residents. For non-Ohio residents, it would be $73,747, and it all includes the same thing. I will say that first year, and this is why I started with the first year, is because the first year our non-resident students have to pay the non-resident fee. So sometimes students get it confused, like does um, non-resident students have to pay an increase in tuition? It's not an increase in tuition, it's a fee that's added on um, because you're, you're not a resident of Ohio. But optometry was able to uh, work out an agreement with the university to where students, non-resident students would pay that non-resident fee the first year. And then in years two through four, you would pay $5 per semester. So that drops significantly um, as far as tuition, which is also helpful you know, in, in helping uh, defray some of that cost for your attendance. So, um, after that first year, like I said, the non-resident fee goes down to $5 per semester, which basically you're kind of paying the same as an Ohio resident plus $5, you know, that semester. Mm -hmm. So um, everything else is plus or minus $10,000. And of course, it, it varies just because of your cost of it, um, your living expenses, right? So if you're doing a rotation somewhere, you know, in, I don't know, Arizona or something like that. Of course, the cost of living would be a little bit different than living in Columbus. So um, I would use that as a base, you know, when you're trying to estimate the cost. And if, but again, it can it can plus or minus, you know, ten thousand dollars just depending on your lifestyle and kind of how you <laughs> choose to live as well. Um, so does that include the required equipment? I know you've mentioned the iPad was uh, estimated in there, but does that include like your trial lens kit, your diagnostics kit, anything like that for the first year? So the, it, the estimate is broken out in a couple of ways. So that we have the build fixed costs, which are your tuition, your insurance, your um, non-resident fee if you're a non-resident. Then we have it categorized as a non-build expected cost, which that's your books and uh, equipment and the iPad. So in that estimate, yes, we've, we've accounted for those, those um, the equipment that you will use throughout the program. Awesome. And is the iPad just recommended or is that actually a requirement um, to attend the program? It's uh, the iPad's a requirement. We do all of our testing on iPads. 
Uh, we use ExamSoft and then we use a lot of data analytics with ExamSoft that we share with the students when they're preparing for boards. So it allows them to prepare for boards better. So it is a requirement. Awesome. But if an applicant goes to our website, I, I agree with you. I, I, I think that the financial stuff should be more transparent across the board. If they go to our website, they'll see the exact tuition breakdown and they will see the general fees. They will see the expenses. And we are very, uh, we, we try to be truthful with the expenses. So we include everything like vaccination fees. It's all included in our $5,600 estimate of additional costs. Uh, and we're really lenient. Uh, our cost of living is like, we estimate it's like $18,000. So we're not estimating that you're gonna be in an apartment with 18 people, right? So this is like the average cost of living for our optometry students at a nice apartment with, where they're rooming with a, with a roommate. Uh, so we do estimate with a roommate. Like Candace said, if you decide I want to live in a real high-end apartment by myself, then we're not. We will not say that that included that. But if you go, if they go to our website, we we try to be very transparent with the exact costs so students can make uh, choices with real facts. Right. Um, and for uh, as far as equipment goes, um, are you guys still doing the um, equipment fair, or do you just um, have a standard set that every first year student um, is able to purchase? We still bring in different companies. Uh, every every year they elect a, a, a the students elect an equipment representative who kind of organizes it. But we still have Heine, we still have Walsh Allen, we still have uh, uh, Keeler. They all come in. They they demonstrate the BIOs, uh, they, all of the direct scopes, et cetera. Um, and then um, the students make choices. Uh, certainly sometimes um, every year we leave it up to the students that we give them a lot of guidance as to our, our you know, is one better than the other, et cetera, and all that. Uh, but sometimes the students make their own decisions. We're all gonna get together and we can get 10% off, things like that. That's, that's totally up to the students. But we still have all of the companies have access to come in and, and demonstrate the equipment to the students. Awesome. Um, so my next question is what resources are made available for students? So including in your student fees, um, is there like a student rec, tutoring services? Um, what is included with your um, student fees? Um, yeah, go ahead, Candice. So all of that. So we have resources that are specific to the College of Optometry, which will include our awesome student affairs team that helps support students throughout the program. Uh, we actually have a psychologist that's on staff that supports just our students. Um, and then you have, of course, faculty that are always there. Of course, you know, staff like Sean and myself who are always willing to help. Um, that's just within the college. Um, and then you get to the university, you know, resources, which are counseling services as well, which are, you know, the um, health center, student wellness center, which we also have the rec center, which is like huge. Uh, you, of course, you get access to football tickets, and, and um, we have a student union, and there's a good amount of construction that's going on around the health profession quadrant of campus, where there's a whole bunch of different building, uh, buildings and um, an interprofessional, uh, kind of like student union, if you will, that's being built right now. So a lot of different resources, different areas where students can hang out, study, um, come together as a community. Uh, you know, have different events, that sort of thing. Um, as far as like supporting students through our program, uh, here at Ohio State, we do have like we match our students with faculty members to where even outside of the classroom, they're there to have support system there. So they'll do fun activities outside, you know, just kind of creating that community and, and support system with one another. Um, there's also tutoring available. Uh, we match them with 
current students that are you know upperclassmen in that way they also get that that touch point as well and kind of get a, a mentor if you will uh we're also able to match them with alums that have a you know, specific area that they're interested in um so all different types of support here it's it's really great because it's a small community and because it's a small community you can provide that one-on-one -on -one, um, um support to to students Awesome. Um, so you, I think you touched on that a little bit about um, getting involved with like upperclassmen and stuff. Um, so can you talk a little bit about maybe clubs, mission trips, community service opportunities that the optometry students are involved with on campus when they're not studying? Sure. I know there's, there's quite an amount of student organizations here at the college as well as at the university. So it really depends on uh, your preference and and how how much you want to be involved, right? So if you just want to be involved um, specifically with uh, optometry, of course, there the there's uh, we usually have different um, student clubs that have a focus in each subspecialty area within optometry. So there's a low vision club, there's a contact lens club, that sort of thing. Um, there's also the American Optometric Student Association uh, Organization, I'm sorry, uh, that you can participate in. And then on the university scale, there is um, a organization that is specifically geared towards graduate and professional students. So they come up with activities and they do, you know, trivia night, um, cooking classes, bowling, going to the science fair. I mean, there's so much stuff that you know you can be involved in it just kind of really depends on how much you want to be involved in the focus of your involvement whether you want it to be on a granular scale at the university maybe with other professional students or whether you want it to be specific to optometry and do you guys um do any mission trips at all we do we have a we, we have a very active sfosh organization uh sfosh typically is going to train is going to uh uh, always in the past, they went either to Africa, Central America, et cetera, and did an SFOSH trip every year. This year, because of COVID, they went uh, actually to the Appalachian area. They still did their trip, but they stayed inside the United States. Uh, we have a uh, fellowship of Christian optometrists that every year does a mission trip to Jamaica. Uh, we have an alumnus who has a, a surgical center, optometric surgical center, uh, that they built in Jamaica, and our students go down there and participate uh, in screenings and, and care, uh, trying to get cataract surgery, et cetera. Uh, then we have a very, very active uh, National Optometric Student Association uh, that is involved in a lot of screenings in, um, in, in the community, glaucoma screenings in underserved communities, uh, at school systems, at fairs. Uh, we have a very active Lions organization that does a lot of screenings to different organizations that want to be screened, whether or not it be pediatric screenings or if they, they want to be elderly screenings, et cetera. So there's, there's lots and lots of opportunities for, uh, for community service and screenings. Uh, the college itself, I think we have 24 groups just inside our college, but then the university has about 500 organizations that you can join. So even if you want to join multicultural food and dance, right? the nice thing about Ohio State is um, every student in the College of Optometry is a student at Ohio State. So you could either make, just stay as Candace was saying, you could do everything just within the college and you could define Ohio State as two buildings and 600 students, or you could get really involved if your bandwidth allows it. And then Ohio State can be a campus of 100,000 people, and you could do all of the other things that are involved. So there's also a lot of different uh, community organizations that students can get involved in at the university level. 
it's really kind of up to the student to decide, you know, what do they have a passion for and what do they have the bandwidth for. Uh, but uh, no one's ever lacked for opportunity uh, at, at Ohio State to get involved. We're a land grant institution. Our mission is to give back to the community. Uh, that's what the university is based on. So, uh, so that's what a lot of our clubs are involved in. Yeah, it sounds like they have lots of opportunities to get involved with everything. Um, one question about the missions trips and then yes. the screenings. Do you have to be um, an upperclassman or can you start doing that in your first year? So the way they run that is typically by, um, they do, they, they have their own system, but they do it kind of like points. You know, like, so if you do an SFOSH, someone has to sort all those glasses, someone has to clean all those glasses, et cetera. So everyone's going in there and they work to get the trip all together. They, 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 they accumulate all the glasses from Lions. They sell it for junk to get price. So they run this as a very cost-effective type thing. So students uh, kind of earn that right to go. And every year that they go, uh, some, uh, some first years can go. Uh, but we limit it on first years, et cetera, because first years could do acuity and things like that, but we can't just do everything with first years. So it's going to be typically uh, more, uh, probably the most that goes are third years, right? Because a lot of our fourth years are out at their, if they're at a, at a VA, et cetera. They might want to, they, they don't want to take a professional leave time during that. Everyone gets professional leave time to go on these mission trips, but they may not want to do it when they're at a VA or something. So third years go extensively, then a number of uh, second years can go because they could do all the acuities and cover tests and pressures and things like that. And then first years go. And first years, when they do go, they, they, they typically do a lot of the organization, checking people in, moving them around. So they so people go from across all four years and then typically two of our faculty go. And that's true for all of our mission trips. Awesome. Um, so we're going to jump into a question that, you know, could be a topic of uh, anxiety to some people, and that is national boards. Um, uh -huh. So at Ohio State, how do you guys prepare your students to take um, three, the three parts of national boards? Uh, uh, we, we, we prepare them. <coughs> Excuse me. We're very lucky at Ohio State. If you look at our national board part one pass scores, et cetera, last, you know, 94 pass percent on the first time the year before 92, year before 89. So year in and year out, we typically do extremely well on national boards. Uh, both uh, that, so part one, again, is typically about averages about 90%. Part two is real high, 98. Part three, we're in the 90%. Uh, and typically by the time people, by the time they graduate, uh, about 97% of our students have passed all three parts. Uh, okay, sometimes we have someone that has to take it again that summer, like part three. The way we prepare them really, uh, and this sounds maybe like a, a cop-out, but we prepare them by, you know, national boards is designed to ask basic, like part one, it is designed to make sure that you understand basic science components embedded in a clinical scenario. Right, so they ask. So they ask you a clinical scenario, something that has clinicality and criticality, and they want you to be able to understand what is the basic science thing that's explaining this. What is the protein, etc. Um, so the student has to be able to put together the basic science knowledge and the clinical science knowledge all at one time. And the way we prepare them is that's how we teach them from the very beginning. So in their first year, again, when we're teaching basic science, the people that are teaching them are basic scientists and clinicians at the same time. So we're teaching them from. This is the basic science idea. This is the mesencephalon. This is the Edinger-Westphal. Now let's talk exactly how that, student, that patient is going to present in clinic, right? So when you see anisocoria, you have to know that that's an efferent defect. You know, that's not an optic nerve disease. 
So we talk that way to our first years. And then when they get into their second year and third year and they're in clinic, then the clinical doctors are reinforcing that at the same time. This is what you're seeing in clinic. Well, tell me about the basic science, et cetera. So, they, so th that's how they think. So when they go into the test, right, uh, they, they feel confident that they can handle that time. Uh, we will do um, reviews when asked, like we could do, they're like, okay, uh, can you review these five topics in anatomy, these six topics they'll send us sometimes if they want to do reviews, uh, but we don't have any, um, um, we don't have any course prep, like intensive course prep necessary that we do with our students. We just educate them along the way. Uh, and we give them confidence that they can do it. And then we also tell them that we understand that it's a very stressful event, no matter how well you're prepared. Uh, so we offer them a lot of emotional support during boards and we bring in puppies and we break boards and we do karate things because they have to blow off some steam. Uh, but that's how we prepare them for, for part one. Uh, a number of our students will do things like KMK, but what they tell us is they typically use KMK and the other programs, maybe any of the board review programs, um, for like the schedules, but then they use their own notes for the content. Uh, and I think that's why they do so well is they have a lot of content. For part two and uh, part three, we prepare them uh, again by, um, you know, by the time they're taking part two in their, in their fourth year, like I said, since we don't have residents, they've seen so many patients and they've seen so many difficult patients and they've done so much clinical analysis. You know, our ratios in clinic are only are, are two to one or three to one at the highest. All right. And, and we don't use students to teach students. So our attending, since we keep low ratios, are in the student's exam room a lot, asking them a lot of questions like this is what you got. Why? This is what you got. Why didn't you get this? Why did you run this test instead of this test? So we're constantly getting them ready for for practice, right? This is, so we're, we're, we're constantly get hitting them for clinical thought processes uh, and, and boards is a minimum level demonstration of that ability. So if, if that's the way they've been trained and they're used to being tested that way, then when they go into part two boards, they do exceptionally well. Uh, again, we don't have hundred percent on part two every year because it is a one day event and someone could have a bad day. They go back in and they take it a second time. Uh, and then part three, um, is they, we let them know part three, uh, at this time though, it's changing is a lot of repetition, a lot of practice. So we have two rooms that are set up with the exact same equipment as they have in Charlotte so that they could go in and practice on that equipment and get down the muscle memory with that equipment. Uh, we use the exact, our, our slit lamps are, 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 are higher level than what they do on that. So in the national boardrooms, we use the exact same slit lamps that boards have so they could go in and practice. And that's what we tell them is you just, it's repetition, repetition. You've got to practice for part three. Uh, the new part three, we'll see what happens. The new part three, I'm excited. It's going to have a lot more uh, clinical diagnostic reasoning, et cetera, instead of just procedures. So I'm excited to see what that's going to hold. Yeah. Um, and as far as um, for part one goes, I know yeah. students usually tend to take that the spring of their third year. Yes. Mm -hmm. March um, of the third year. Yeah. Do you guys a lot for time um, off for that? so that students can um, maybe prepare and then take it? Or um, does that have to be arranged one-on-one? -on -one? Uh, we give them the day of boards off because we, we figure that they should go. So we're very nice about that. Uh, we actually, we give them, uh, what our students can do is take, uh, uh, they can take two days out of clinic um, the, the week before, the, the week of boards before or the week before simply to get like mentally prepared. 
so they're like, no, I just want to take a whole day and just like relax. So they could take, uh, so we give them that they could take up to two days. They don't have to, we don't take, we don't close the clinic, but they could take up to two days, but we don't give them weeks off or months off to prepare uh, simply because we don't find that they need that time off to prepare. So. Awesome. Um, so my next and last question um, here is, you know, failure is not something that no one ever anticipates, um, mm -hmm. but professional school is hard. And, you know, some people might struggle um, the first year, second year, or whenever that may be. Um, so how do you support your students when they perform poorly? Okay. Uh, well, what, what's real important is we tell students, right, we fully expect everyone to struggle somewhere along the four years, right? That's why we call you a student. So the, this idea that we take exceptionally smart, talented students, but we have very, very high expectations. So we expect someone, people to struggle at some point in the time. Sometimes they struggle in first year because of the volume of the course material. Sometimes they struggle in clinic because they can't get out of their own mind and be personable in clinic, et cetera. So people struggle at different times. Uh, and what we tell them is, that they have to always remember, right? We know their students. We expect them to struggle. We are here to support them when they are struggling. That's, that's the whole reason that we are faculty and staff at the College of Optometry is to help students become doctors, which includes helping you when you struggle. So when students are struggling in the first year, first off, we have a very open door policy for our faculty. So we have regular office hours, but we also just have students to come up to our first year faculty all the time just asking questions. Uh, it doesn't have to be a question. It might just be, uh, you know, Dr. Early, I just want to make sure, can I go through the, 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 the histology of the, of the lid real quickly with you? I just want to say it out loud to make sure I have it down. And then you could, right? And I'm like, sure, go ahead. That's absolutely fine. So they have access to our faculty. Uh, all of our labs typically have TAs. All of our TAs are also optometrists that are typically getting their master's or their PhD also. So students are only taught by optometrists uh, at, at Ohio State. So they have access to those TAs uh, also, same type of thing. And then we also have a tutoring program that the college runs where we support uh, and we use uh, second year students, third year students who have done really well in class. Uh, and then we'll pay those second year and third year students to tutor first year students that are really in academic that need additional academic support. Uh, so there's a there's a lot of support. Uh, we watch students uh, uh, very carefully. Uh, we're in contact with them a lot to make sure they're not struggling. Like as Candace said, I mean that's one of the reasons that we brought an in house psychologist because sometimes when students struggle, right, they might have got a phone call that a parent is sick, right. And that could be the thing that and so all of a sudden they bomb a midterm, right? Students don't get dumber when they come to school in any way. It's always something that causes them some sort of stress that causes them not to perform up to their level, right? But what we used to find is if they had anything where they needed a psychologist, it would take them two weeks to get an appointment. Two weeks is an eternity in professional school. So what we did is we brought an in-house psychologist in. So now all they have to do is walk to the fifth floor and talk to the psychologist. And there is no payment. There is no bills. There is no telling parents or significant others, it's just go in and talk to them because he's on our fact, he's on our staff. Uh, so that's what we try to do is we try to support them, but we try to support them in real time. And we don't wait to things get to a, to a crisis level when we can't dig you out. It's more like, as you begin to struggle, as you get a phone call, as you find out a friend is sick, as you're having problems with roommates or a spouse, come talk to us right away. And so we could work with you along the way. If that means I have to move a test or things like that, I'd rather do that proactively because I could do that, right? Rather than 
uh, I can't do it after the fact and say, I can't ignore that grade. So, and our students know that we're there to support them. So they are very willing to come in and talk to us and, and tell us that they're having issues and get help early on. No matter where a student goes to school, they have to know that, that's, that the help has to be asked for early on so that they can work for it and know that there should be no embarrassment or nothing else about struggling because everybody struggles at some time in school. It's, it's, so just get help real fast and we offer it at every level. Yeah, I mean, I think those are really great resources in addition to like the tutoring and um, the open door policy, the in-house psychologist. I didn't know that you could just like walk in, in the middle of the day and just, um, you know, talk about some stuff because I think what a lot of people tend to forget when they're in professional school is that mental health like still matters over your grades because um, that could also impact it. So that's great that you guys offer that to students. And it's, in, I'm assuming the same building that they have. Same building and in any study, anywhere where you go up, you will find out that the, that the anxiety level and uh, et cetera is higher in professional students than it is in undergraduates. So, um, so yeah, those, those are, those are recognized problems that in addition to a hard curriculum, there's a lot going on uh, as far as mental health. You cannot be a good optometrist. You cannot be a good student unless you concentrate fully on mental health and physical health. And you have to know that those are, are, are absolute necessities. Those aren't, those aren't gifts you give to yourself. A day off for mental health is not a gift you give to yourself. It is a necessity that you have to do. That's how we kind of approach it. Yeah, absolutely. And life doesn't stop when you're in professional school, unfortunately. No, it does not. <laughs> all right. So these are all the questions that I have, um, but I did get some questions from the listeners that um, they would like answered. Um, so the first question that I got was, is a bachelor's degree required to matriculate into Ohio State University College of Optometry? No, no, it's not. Uh, you have to have all of your prerequisites done, but you do not have to have a bachelor's degree. Uh, actually getting in in three years, if you could get all of your prerequisites done and apply and get in in three years, we feel is a tremendous way to avoid a year's worth of tuition. And as uh, as uh, debt is a major problem in professional school, that's a great way to uh, to to avoid debt. Awesome. Um, the next question here is: Do you accept international students? If so, is there a tuition increase? Uh, that's what Candace was talking about. So, any out-of-state student, including international students, uh, would in their first year have a twenty-one thousand uh, um, dollar um, out-of-state surcharge. Uh, so that's across the board, whether or not you came from Arizona or whether or not you came from Canada. Uh, whether or not you're an international student or an out-of-state student, that is only for the first year. And then in second, third, and fourth years, uh, that out-of-state surcharge or international surcharge goes down to $5 a semester. So we do accept international students. Awesome. Um, and then the third question here is, is there any campus housing for OD students? There is campus housing. It's not specifically for OD students. The university has a graduate and professional student housing that's run, run through their um, housing office uh, that students have um, access to to be able to apply for. But um, there's a mixture. Some, some of our students stay there. Some of them stay in apartments, you know, maybe a block or two or a mile away from campus. And then some who might be from Columbus might stay in actual Columbus or in the you know, southern area of Columbus. So um, there is housing, just not specifically for OB students. Okay. At, I have a follow at Ohio State, the medical school, the dental school, the nursing school, all of those professional schools are in one corner of the campus. Uh, 
So that entire part of campus is surrounded by apartments where most of the professional students stay. So that little corner of campus, all the housing and all the apartments is almost all professional students. So that's typically where a lot of our students stay. Right. Um, I have a follow-up question about that, actually. So um, for students that do not live on campus, um, is, is there parking available? Yeah, they have to buy parking passes. Mm -hmm. But they have student parking passes. Uh, so you could buy surface lot or you could buy garage, depending on how much you want to pay and make sure that you're going to have how easy it's going to be to find a spot. Uh, like any campus, parking is, uh, to be totally transparent, parking is, it's, it's, a, it's a license to hunt is basically what I consider a parking pass. So you have to get there early to get a spot. Right. Okay. So um, the next question we might've already touched on, um, but um, I don't know if there's like specific sites, but the question asks, what are the most popular rotation sites among your students? Um, so they could go on the site and they could see again, where our, uh, where our VAs are, uh, we don't have any one particular, like, so what we do for our residents, for our extern sites is uh, we're rather uh, we're rather restrictive. We have great residency sites, but what we ask our residency sites is to make sure that our students have their own exam room and their own schedule. So what that means is they, they said, we'll do that, but then you have to give us a student every rotation. So we use the same sites every rotation because they have a room and a schedule for our students. Uh, so we have uh, VAs at Utah, we have VAs out, out West, we have VAs in Vermont, we have VAs in uh, um, the VA system throughout Ohio is very extensive. So Cleveland and Cincinnati, et cetera. So, uh, so th those students like them for different reasons. Uh, so there's not one, and the same thing for our ODMD sites. They're, they're, they're across the United States. Um, and uh, students might like go to the Omni in New Jersey or something because they know the doc or they heard really good things or they have family in New Jersey and they might want to go there. Um, so um, our sites are listed on our website, but again, we don't use extern sites for any of the specialty care. So all of the, all of the pediatrics and contact lenses and low vision, et cetera, is done by us in our own clinics. So, um, so we don't have any like this is the, and we don't have any like big competition. I know some people, some schools are like, you have to, you know, the highest student will get this best site. And then that, we don't, we don't have any of that. It, again, it just goes down to personal preference and, and choices as to where you want to go, but they should go down to our website and they can see a map of where all of our sites are. Awesome. Yeah. I'll make sure to include that in the um, episode notes. Um, and this is the last question that we got. Um, so we're kind of backtracking to interviews again. Um, and this question asks, what are some good questions to ask your interviewers when they ask you if you have any questions? Um, so the way I approach questions from students is I, I, I fully know that by the time we invite students to Ohio State for an interview that they've, they've demonstrated a, a lot of academic ability and optometric interest in, in leadership. So they, we fully expect that they're going to have a number of offers, right, of schools that they can go to. And that's what we want, right? They're going to be like, uh, by the time I interview them, I did, you know, interviews yesterday. And they're like, okay, I'm, I'm in it for schools. Uh, so it's going to come down to the student has to choose the school. Like I'm an optometrist. So the way I approach it is I want every student to choose the school where they are going to feel the most comfortable, the most challenged, the most supported. So they will be the best optometrist. If that's Ohio State, great. If that's Nova, great. I want you to put yourself into a school where you are going to be the best optometrist you can be. 
So the questions you should ask are the questions that are going to make a difference in your choice, right? So whatever it is that is going to make that school stand out to you, you're looking for something specific, right? To, to make your choice, then those are the questions you should ask. They should be personalized to you because that is a difficult decision, right? And you could only make that decision if you have the best facts and you compare one school to the same way to the others. Unfortunately, in optometry, we use different words. You know, I'll tell you how many exams there are. Other schools will tell you how many patient experiences there are. You know, exams don't include screenings and eyewear gallery. Patient experiences do. So, you know, questions about clarifications, about things like that. So ask questions that are important to you to make a decision on what would be the best school for me to go to. And are you going to prepare me? And do you offer me this opportunity? You know, I want to specialize in contact lenses. What, am, what type of contact lens exposures will I get? And what type of specialty? I want to do neurooptometry. Tell me a little bit about your rotations in neurooptometry and VT. You know, I want to go into low vision. Can you tell me specifically about what, what exactly I'm going to learn about the low vision and what chances I have to really excel in those things? Those, those are the types of questions I really like. Uh, I'm not looking for any like theoretically really great question. Uh, um, you know, I know people say you always have to ask a question, but but make it personal and, ma and make it mean something to your choice is what I would recommend. All right. Well, these are all the questions that I have. Um, again, thank you guys so much for your time. This has been a blast. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. So that is all I have for you guys this week. I hope you enjoyed listening and found the podcast helpful. Again, make sure to follow the podcast Instagram at keepin.it.od and interact with posts and stories. Let me know what you want to hear. Um, ask me any questions and I will try my best to answer. And if you or someone you know would like to collaborate on an episode, um, make sure to email me at keepinitodpodcast, all one word, at hotmail.com and then put collab in the subject line so I can see it. And that's all I have for you. I'll see you right back here next week with a brand new episode. And as always, we'll be keeping it OD. Thank you guys.